Welcome to Know Your Risk Radio on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. Know Your Risk Radio is hosted by Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Know Your Risk Radio is brought to you by Bulwark Capital, helping families navigate the ever-changing and often volatile markets. Know Your Risk Radio starts now. Here's your host, Zach Abraham. And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us for yet another of the most scintillating hours in finance radio. And as I was telling our folks on that three-minute open, uh, if we sound better today, if it sounds clearer, if it sounds more professional, no, I didn't have some kind of epiphany, (laughs) much to the chagrin of my wife, Uh, we are we are back in the Cairo studio or Cairo radio studios for the first time since COVID. It's kind of odd. I I don't know if you guys experienced this, but um, regardless of when you do that, going back to something for the first time since COVID started, it's always kind of like its own event. And it's amazing how much it's changed, not the building itself, but just things around it. What a transfer. You know, I think sometimes you got to sit back and realize what a crazy transformational period, you know, the last two to three years has been. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. So anyway, first show that we've done this, we're not going to get this is not going to become a habit, people. It, and and uh, the reason why is, you know, our offices are in Tacoma. The, the covid bunker has become so much more convenient, but it is fun to get up here and uh, and have the fearless millennial back on the on the board for us. I think that just having Darren here is going to improve the professionalism and the accuracy of this show. Um, that's that's the hope anyway. That's how it's worked in the past. He certainly can't hurt. I can promise you that. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, great show planned for you today. And, and again, as I was explaining in our three-minute open, th- this show is really going to follow the original intent of, of, of the show. Uh, and the original intent of the show, well, I mean, obviously it was marketing, you know, wanting to grow Bulwark and get our name out there. But I always believed that the best way to do that, rather than running some type of scripted infomercial, like brutal to listen to, you know, stab your eyes. <laughs> we all know those shows, right? You get in, you, you got 770 or Cairo on the radio, you get in on the weekend and you're like, oh, God, this stuff. Right. So we never wanted to be like that. What the goal was, was, um, you know, without sounding too grandiose and too self-important, to democratize investing, to take these really complex things and bake them down to to a level where even novices can understand. Because I think there's this there's this barrier of entry into the financial world where everybody likes to talk in esoteric terms, and it sounds smart. And when you hear one guy use an esoteric term, everybody else starts using it, and it's like a club, right? Well, once you decode it. You realize you're not nearly as ignorant and stupid as you think you are, right? It's not an intelligence thing. It's a vernacular thing. It's got its own language. And a lot of it is just self-indulgent, just so we can sound smart. Uh, And it's funny, too, because you see this all. One of the things I love to do is if I'm on Twitter or, or or I'm at a conference or something and I listen to one of these erudite, really professorial, you know, brilliant financial minds. I love to go find their funds or their investments because it's not always the case, but usually their performance is horrible, (laughs) right? And just think about Buffett, right? How anecdotal he sounds, how folksy he sounds. He's one of the greatest investors of all time. I've always believed that the mastering of any topic should allow you to explain it to a five-year-old, right? These aren't, this, this isn't that complex, a lot of people like to believe it is. Well, you, this is why you need me. For God's sakes, I don't want you out there facing the wolf alone. You need some professional guidance. So anyway, uh, this show, today's show is really going to follow along that curve. And I want to address several things. I'm going to do the market update. Uh, we're going to do a second segment on commodities, give you some updates. Some really big news has come down the pipe. And then the third segment is going to be focused on, you know, an economic assessment. But all of these things, the two different segments and the market update is all about breaking things down to where we under to, to where everybody can understand them. Because I think there is so much 
consternation. I think there's so much confusion. I think there is so much, um, in my opinion, there is so much wrong data reading going on. If that's, that's an awkward phrase, wrong data. But I just, I think what we have in markets right now is a, is very much a perception problem. And, and to, to our perspective, I think it's a fairly clear picture and it's pretty easy, but all of the different cross currents and things coming together at the same time, I think are creating a lot of distortions. A lot of people are relying on historical data and historical precedent. And I think that we need to be conscious of that, but I just think we have to look at it through the lens of where we're at Right. This is not a normal moment in markets or economies for a variety of different reasons, but mainly because of the unprecedented amount of stimulus and money printing and accumulated proliferation of debt, all those things. But here's the good news from our perspective, and I'll tell you where I'm coming at it from today, even though I didn't stay as regimented to the approach that we came into the year with, meaning we've had a decent year. The value fund is down eight and a half, nine on the year, something like that. Market's now down 20, NASDAQ down more than 30. I'm not unhappy with that, but um, what does frustrate me is we probably played things too cautious. That's my job as a risk manager, you know, no offenses, but uh, so far this year, and there's only two weeks left, so we could say this year, uh, this year's played out exactly how we how we thought it would. And I'm not bragging. I'm saying that because I want to share with you the perspective that we're looking at this through. And that perspective so far this year has been spot on. And so I really think that we're looking at it through the right lens. Now, am I going to keep my ear to the ground? Yes, absolutely, because things can change. This is such a fast moving picture right now that I'm not convinced that we're going to have it dialed a quarter from now. But but just the framework we're using has been a perfect roadmap for what's happening so far. So anyway, let's get into the market update and, um, you know, kind of go down the list. So another Fed meeting this, this week, um, no real surprises whatsoever, right? Fed was going to hike 50 bips. Um, I'm not surprised by the market action. You guys know my thoughts. Um I thought it was a bear market rally. Sure enough, I've been talking to you about the channels that we've been tracing all year long. Meaning, you know, if, if you look at a bull market, any bull market is going to be a pattern. It's going to be a trend. You can see it. You can chart it. And and typically it's going to stay, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to work to the upper end of the channel. It's going to work to the lower end of the channel and just kind of go back and forth. And it's going to stay in that channel until the bull market's over. Bear markets are the same. And this one has been a wild ride. And, and wilder and crazier and more, you know, back and forth more than most. But then when you step back, it has stayed perfectly in our channel. So let's start right out of the gate with just looking at the bear market. And one of the reasons that we felt very confident to increase our short exposure in the last week. So far, that's working out really well. Uh, you know, no guarantee it will next week, right? Um, but here's 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 misperception number one. Okay, when we're charting and looking at markets, everybody in this industry is always going to look at the S&P 500 and they should. It's the biggest index that has the broadest, not the biggest index, but it's the index that has the broadest measurement of all corners of the economy. Right. So the Dow is 30 industrial stocks. That's it. That's why you don't hear me talking about the Dow. I know for retail investors and people at home, everybody talks about the Dow. They shouldn't. It's a it's a it's a it's a relic of a bygone era. It's 30 stocks. Right. You got 5000 publicly traded stocks in the United States. So, you know, typically you're going to see a correlation between the Dow and the other indexes. But if you want to know what's going on with companies and the valuation of companies, you're going to want to be looking at the S&P 500 normally. One of the things that we thought coming into this year was we firmly, and I've talked about this multiple times throughout the year, but we believed during this one period that we thought that the NASDAQ would be the thing to watch. We thought that the NASDAQ, that the signals on the NASDAQ would be the index that would really paint the clear picture. 
And that is exactly what's happened. So a lot of the bullish calls that you've heard people saying in the last week or two was based on the fact that the S&P 500 crossed above its 200-day moving average. And that is an extraordinarily uh, bullish sign. Why weren't we bullish? Because the NASDAQ was still 3% below its. Why do I think that's important? Because the biggest, most valuable companies in the world are on the NASDAQ. Now, a lot of them are on the S&P 500 too. But the biggest, most profitable, powerful companies, NASDAQ is their home. And NASDAQ is the home. The companies on the NASDAQ really are, they've been the best performers in this cycle. They've been the home or the lead attraction for so many retail investors wanting to jump on the tech train. You know, longest bull market expansion. The NASDAQ outperformed the S&P over the bull market of the last 15 years by, I want to say like, a shoot, don't quote me, but I want to say, I think the S&P at the peak was up like 350% from, from from its lows coming out of the financial crisis. And I think the NASDAQ was over 500% up. Okay, so... All of that into, you know, taking all that into into consideration, I just felt like it was natural to not look at the S&P this time. Now, I don't think that this is going to be something that is a permanent change going forward. I think it's unique to this cycle. But the reason we increased our short exposure over this past week, uh, uh, last Friday we added some to it, and then we added on uh, on Monday and Wednesday as well. The reason we did that is because every time this year the NASDAQ has bumped up against the top end of that channel, right, the, 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 the top line of that bulwark or that, that excuse me, that, that bear market trend, it has had a hard reversal. And that is tip, that has led every single time to a new low. Um, now, I don't know if it will, you know, nobody knows for sure, but it did, you know, you had this false dawn of everybody going, oh, we broke the 200-day moving average on the S&P, and we were just sitting there going, I don't care. Show me the NASDAQ. Show me the NASDAQ. NASDAQ hit that level or bumped right up against it, I want to say, on Tuesday. And now a sharp reversal. 11,200 NASDAQs back to the 10.6 range. Um, So once again, guys, another bear market rally. And we've been warning you about these all year. And every single time now, we've had three of them. Every time, oh, here we go. Lift off again. And we've said, no, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. And boom, rejection again. So in my opinion, that's going to be kind of the first thing of a perception problem going on right now. If you want to be tracking this, follow the NASDAQ. It's told the story. The other indexes have led you astray. Okay, so that's that's where it's at. Uh, like I said, the more rate hikes, guys, um, this market's fighting it. But I will just tell you, it's going to be tough to fight the market noise and the market movements. But higher interest rates do not equal higher asset prices. They just don't. Okay, you're still looking even after today, you're still looking at a market that's trading around 20, 21 times earnings. And I think the thing that's going to shock people is you could see this market bleed off another 10 or 15 percent. And I think after first quarter earnings of next year, I think you're probably going to see the P.E. ratio go higher. Why? Because earnings are dropping. Right. And what does that tell you when we see that? Like after first quarter of next year, when, when those earnings reports come in. And let's say stocks are around this level and earnings drops. That means they're going to have a higher P.E. ratio, you know, which is going to lead us to another situation where, hey, do you want to buy into a market that's trading at 23, 24 times earnings when earnings are moving down and rates are going up? So I don't think the pain's over at all. Um, in fact, I, I, I would think, and again, I don't know the timetable. Nobody does. But I think we're going to see new lows. I think the S&P will see 3,200. Um, I'm kind of of the belief that we may, we'll probably get down. I know this sounds crazy, but I, I think the S&P is going to get down around the, let's call it 2,500 to 2,700 range. That would make some sense based on what we're, what we're seeing or what we're forecasting on earnings next year. And um, I just think the market is being wildly optimistic. And, and we'll get into why that is in the economic assessment. But let's just focus on the market right now and talk about some of the perception problems. Um, I hear so many people out there saying, look, based on these historical comps, 
you know, we don't think we're going to be in recession anytime soon because these are how things play out. And, 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 and a lot of these people are very smart. They've got a lot of good historical data. They're not just shooting in the dark, but they're talking about typical recessionary trends and slowdowns in consumer spending. And these things happen gradually and all that. What I don't see enough people working into their analysis is, though, is what we're referring to the stimulus effect. Okay, so let's just take a step back. In the last 12 months, consumer spending has been up 17% from where we were at in 2019. Has there been some type of miraculous economic development in the last two years that has seen the biggest two? I think it's the biggest two-year jump in consumer spending on, on record. Don't quote me on that. If not, it's top two or three. But has there been some type of economic miracle that's happened? No, it was the stimulus, right? So you saw the sharpest rise in consumer spending ever. Well, when that stimulus rolls off, do you think it's crazy to see one of the quickest declines in consumer spending, especially when you weigh in the economic backdrop, especially when you bake in the, the deep freeze that's currently going on in real estate? I'm not saying it'll be the fastest decline on history in history. I'm just saying I don't understand when you look at interest rates and you look at the waning impacts of stimulus, right? Every month we go, less of that stimulus money is there. It just is. People go, well, there's still a trillion in excess savings. Guys, excess savings, I, I'm not bemoaning it. I'm not saying it's a pointless metric. It's not. There's just so much noise in that number. Whenever I hear people bring that up, I'm like, okay, well, we don't even know what 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 the you know what the composition of the you know for, for all we know, 95 percent of that excess savings could be stored up in bank accounts of people that have greater than a five to ten million dollar net worth. Meaning that's not a good indicator of economic activity. No, it could be a good one. I'm just saying there's so many variabilities. There's so much variables There's or variability in that number. It's really hard to paint a clear picture. So I just think, hey, we're making this too, 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 uh, too complicated. Let's take a look back. Right. Inflation up makes things more expensive. Right. Uh, interest rates up makes things more expensive. People like where well, there's wage growth. Listen to this, guys. All these people going, oh, the great wage growth. We have had negative real wage growth for two years now, meaning wages are growing, but they're growing at a slower pace than inflation. That's not bullish for consumer spending, right? And then, like I said, you add the interest rate picture to it. You add global economic picture to it. It's still not good. Doesn't mean things have to be horrible. Doesn't mean our call for our belief that the S&P will eventually go below 3000 doesn't mean that we're going to be right on that either. Things can change, right? Economies and markets are incredibly dynamic things that are changing all the time. So we got to keep an open mind to it. But I just think that so many of these historical comps, we can use them as guideposts, but I think we need to magnify the situation because never before have we been dealing with going into a recession while simultaneously rolling off the greatest wealth handout in history. And I just think it's crazy to not think that those declines is that stimulus effect wears off that those declines are not going to happen faster than people think. So I don't think the typical historical models for recessions are really useful. You know, I think the whole debate, and I've said this all year, the whole debate, are we in a recession or not? I think it's ridiculous. Just go talk to people. Right. And I, and there's again, there's so many things clouding the picture right now. Um, you know, for instance, had you not had the supply chain problems with the automobile manufacturers, you would have had a negative GDP print last quarter. That would have been three quarters in a row. It was like, well, the job market's so strong. And you're like, guys, they, again, that's not a complete picture. You're also seeing the greatest number every day we go on. Right. Baby boomers are retiring at an increasingly greater rate. And then you have the resignation on top of that. I think the jobs market is really kind of deceiving, too. It's not bad. Right. Certainly not bad. But it's not this robust picture that everybody's painting it out to be. 
And we came into the year, and again, our framework was this. We came into the year and said, look, we think the first half of the year is going to be hot no matter what happens. We referred to the summer as the summer of love. There was so much pent-up demand, pent-up consumer spending, trips, weddings that had been put off for two years, right? People were going to make those trips and spend that money regardless of the state of the economy. And we thought that would make the economy look artificially robust through the summer. Okay. Then we thought you would start seeing weakness in both earnings and economic signals in the third quarter that should continue to increase in the first quarter, and things should look start really looking as nasty as they are. This is our belief in first and second quarter of next year. So far, that is exactly how this has played out. And I am not sticking out my chest and saying how smart we are. I'm actually saying the opposite. Sometimes in finance, you can get lost in the weeds. Well, in life too. But sometimes you get all these elaborate, complicated, you know, why don't we just take a step back and just think about it logically? Interest rates up, input costs up, wage costs up, pinching the consumer, stimulus impacts rolling off. I, I don't understand how you don't get a recession out of that combination. Now, if the Fed panics and goes back to zero and starts printing, then all bets are off. But that's not what they're doing yet. And they're being incredibly insistent on the fact that they're not. Now, I think they're going to eat their words, right? Because I I just am of the belief that they have overcorrected. And I think that there's going to be somewhat of a panic in the Eccles building, which for you guys that aren't economic nerds and wonks like me, that's the Federal Reserve's main building, right? But I, I think there's going to be some panic in the Eccles building at some point in the next year. And they're like, oh, my God, it's, oh, it's, it's worse than we thought. We'll pull back on rate hikes, resume QE. When that happens, I think that that's where we got to step back and reassess. But until the Fed changes their opinion, um, you know, I think you got to stick with it. An- another thing that is really that is really going along with 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 our view at this point, again, got to be got to be open to it. Yields, right? Every single rate hike we've had this year up until the last one, the previous one, the 75 BIP one, uh, uh, yields on U.S. government treasuries went up. All of a sudden, that last 75 BIP hike, the yield on the 10-year treasury went from 4.2 to right now at 3.475. Yesterday, I think we came into the day before that rate hike at 3.5. So we're basically flat. As the Fed's raising rates, what that tells me, guys, is that the bond market is sniffing out the recession that we're talking about. Okay, that's that's what we'd expect to see. Meanwhile, corporate debt is going the other direction. I think we're starting to see the blowout in spreads, meaning yields on corporate debt and value of corporate debt going down, yields going up, and the exact opposite happening on treasury happening with treasuries. What does that tell you? That tells you investors have an appetite to get safer. So we got all the signals. This is why we are still very cautiously positioned. At Bulwark, we're flat on the week, essentially. I think so after today. Um, But we're still playing defense here, guys. And I think you still need to play defense. And I still think the variabilities out there are are nasty. And I think there's a a, a false sense of calm out there. And you need greater thinking. You need risk management. It's not too late. This year hasn't been fun, guys, but I don't think next year is going to be any better. There's still things to protect. You need risk management. You need less fees, more upside ability, and way more protection. You need people actively managing your portfolio that are going to dodge the bullets, okay? Or at least protect you from them. So give us a call, 866-779-RISK, and 866-779-RISK. Go to the radio show website, knowyourriskradio.com. Follow me on Twitter, at KYRradio.com. Google Know Your Risk Radio podcast to subscribe to the podcast. You guys know the drill. Stick with us through the break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. This is Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham. Listen to Zach discuss key investment strategies across several asset classes, not just stocks and bonds. Get your free copy of Zach's new booklet, Common Sense Investing. Go to knowyourriskradio.com. Hey, it's Story Monson with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of Know Your Risk Radio. And Zach, I know you and Bulwark are laser focused on risk management. What is the biggest risk right now? Ironically, bonds. Really? Why? 
Due to all the money printing from central banks in the long period of zero interest rates, some serious inflation is hit, I'm sure you're aware. And inflation crushes bonds. We've been talking about it for seven years. If your portfolio has a significant portion of bonds, you may need a bond replacement strategy. You do need one. Get our free booklet, Common Sense Investing, to learn about Bulwark's bond replacement strategy. This shows you how to protect your retirement against loss, but still get market gains. Our goal is the highest returns with the least amount of risk and cost. Call now for your free copy of Zach's new version of Common Sense Investing. Learn about Bulwark's bond replacement strategy, 866-779-RISK, or go to knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us. All right, let's get right into this. Again, guys, the, the, the focus on this show is looking at things through the right lens and understanding why there is so much confusion. And, and I want you to hear the spirit in which I am saying this. You will never hear me say, oh, they're wrong because they're idiots. We're the only smart ones out there, right? I'm saying this. Because, again, our outlook has proven extraordinarily accurate this year. Again, that's not I'm saying that because I think this is one of those times where having horse sense is going to pay. And I don't think you need to be a CFA, a chartered financial analyst uh, or a forensic accountant or, or a Ph.D. economist to figure this out. I just think you need to apply common sense. And moreover, I almost feel like the more, you know, Right. Um, You know, and and the more skilled you are in those chartings and these historical periods in the past and blah, blah, blah. I I think it's actually going to do you some harm. And especially if and and here's how I can tell, like, here's another way that we know this or or, or at this point, um, we feel confident we have an understanding of what's going on. If I look through the lens of so many of those other people saying, no, we could have a soft landing and no, we're not going to have a recession. And, and, and if we do, it's not going to be the back half of next year. And, and I'm not ranking on those people. I could be proven wrong. I said, I don't think we will be. We haven't so far. But, but the reason I feel confident in that approach is because if you look at markets in the economy through the lens that those people are saying, it doesn't make any sense. Then you step back and look at the lens that we're talking about and it makes perfect sense. Right? Because what did we say coming into the year? We said the economy is really up against it. And I'm getting out of order here. We're going to hit the economy first. We're going to do the commodity section next. But we, the economy is really up against it. Why? Primarily three factors. A, if you wanted something, and for those of you out there that have listened to the show every week, you've heard me say this before, but I really want to put, I want to, I want to make it concise, shrink it down into an edible package in kind of a summary, right? But if you wanted anything over the past two years, you bought it, right? If you wanted new patio furniture, you bought it. Use stimulus checks to do it, right? New flat screen TVs, you bought it. Xboxes, you bought it. Barbecues, you bought it. These are all things that do not signal, they're durable goods, meaning they do not signal some new great appetite for consumption. They're one-offs. Right. So meaning if you buy a new barbecue, it doesn't mean that you're now a barbecue person. And you'll buy a new barbecue every year. Right. If, if you if you remodel your deck and new patio furniture, it doesn't mean that you're an outdoor enthusiast and you're going to buy that stuff every year. Right. So we said, OK, over the next 16 to 18 months, we expect somewhat of a consumer spending air pocket. Like, you know, not not, not like not, nothing maniacal. Right. Nothing crazy. Nothing like depressionary. Just. People bought a bunch of stuff. The stimulus money's gone. You should see consumer spending kind of float back, you know, net of inflation. If you adjust it for inflation, you should see it kind of float back to levels that we saw at the end of 2019. I don't think that's a controversial statement. Okay, so that was one issue that the economy was uh, facing. The other issue, obviously, was interest rates. Right? We've been at 0% interest rates for 15 years. When you jack them this much, it's going to change human behavior. And there's a lot of things like houses that people aren't buying because they don't want to. They're buying them because they can't afford it, right? Mortgage prices are up 90%. They've nearly doubled. We've been saying this all along. Guys like Dave Ramsey, God bless him. Think the world of him. Not beating up on him at all. 
I just think people are being extraordinarily unrealistic. I, he came out in the midsummer and said, look, housing prices aren't going down. And in the show, I came out and said, guys, I have all this respect for this guy in the world, but he's wrong. And it's not because I'm more brilliant. I just think he's looking. And, and, and here was the killer. This is another. This goes back to our perception thing, right? And I'll, I'll use this analogy with Dave Ramsey. Everything he said economically was correct. Everything he said about housing demand and supply was correct. Everything. What did he not pay attention to? Rates. And what have I said on this show for seven years? If you want to understand what is going in real, going on in real estate, look at rates. That tells the whole story. Now, there are going to be other things that impact it. But I'm just saying, rates, you're talking about the most interest rate sensitive aspect of the economy. And I don't care what housing demand is. I don't care what housing supply is. If you double the cost of a mortgage, a mortgage payment in the space of 18 months, House sales will slow down. Does that mean you're going to have an implosion of the real estate market? No, but it just means that people can't afford it, right? It's not, you just can't do it. What does that mean? It means two things. Usually, both of those factors, house prices and mortgage prices, will probably moderate to make things more affordable. But what does that mean? Right, The price of any good will eventually come down to what we call its clearing price, where it can be bought and transacted at, you know, at a normal basis. So when you see the cost of home ownership go to a record high, uh, once again, you don't have to be a PhD economist to go, yeah, housing prices will probably come back down to a level that where consumers can afford them. And here we are in, in, in Seattle, I believe, uh, in our area of the woods. I, I want to say we're already down 12 to 15% from the peak. There are places that are already down 20. Um, until you see something moderate like rates, that's going to continue. Okay, so uh, that's, that's a perfect issue with the perception, right? D- D- Ramsey was issuing data that typically is very poignant, that typically would tell you something. What was he not factoring in? That you've had the most violent, huge, or biggest magnitude and over the shortest period of time interest rate hikes in history. And and, and I just can't believe people look past that. You know, I, I heard something one time, you know, if you want to have insight into a market, focus on interest rates and currencies. And it amazes me how few people do that. Right? They tell you the story. It's kind of the foundational position. Um, <clears throat> so another example of those historical comps not playing out. And this goes into the recession, again, taking a step back and looking at the data, right? Listening to the people's charts and all this kind of stuff. And we're not disavowing it. We're not, we're not ranking on it. We're not looking down our nose. I just think these are one of these times where to expect if, so here's another thing anecdotally, somebody goes, well, in the past, this has happened 93% of the time. And I look at them and I go, okay, not saying that it can't happen again that way, but what about this cycle is similar to any cycles in the past? And the answer is nothing, right? So on those grounds, I'm not saying that historical comps cannot provide some look through. I've just never understood the insistence of people using historical comps on a situation that is multiple standard deviations outside of the historical norm, right? If you're that far outside of the historical norm, then why are we talking about historical comps? Whereas if we take a step back and we just go, okay, so you got stimulus ending, you got interest rates going up, same time, hottest inflation in 40 years, means things are getting really expensive really fast. That's probably going to come down and so is the stock market. And here we are. Don't need to make it more complex than it is. Now, how does this translate to you as an investor right now? If that lens, if that framework that we're looking at the market through stays correct over the next two to four quarters, I mean, I don't need to tell you what's going to happen. It's been spot on this year. It paid to take our approach and just sit back and use some common sense. And this is what it means. If that resonates with you, if you're sitting there going, yeah, Zach, no, I see it, man. I'm on your side of it. I I think these things are going down. Then why aren't you calling? For God's sake, don't just sit there and take another 25% hit or worse on the chin, guys. There's a better way. And as I've also said before, too, 
we're not the only game in town. But if you're still paying the financial advisor to keep you in the S&P 500 and the triple Qs and your mutual funds, I don't think it's going to be a fun year. For, 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 for that matter, I don't think it's going to be a fun five to seven years. And I think the 70s provide a wonderful framework. If you were sitting in the stock market in the 70s, you got absolutely obliterated. People are like, Zach, there was no big crash in the 70s. I'm like, no, but the stock market was flat for 15 years while inflation averaged 9%. That's a catastrophic outcome. If your asset base is flat for 15 years, and I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying, using it as an analogy, right? If your assets don't grow for 15 years and there's 9% inflation, that's like an 80% market drop. It's devastating. Ruins your retirement. Boom. Gone. We've seen it this year. Average stock bond portfolio now is down, what, 60-40 portfolios, down 25-26% on the year. Our 60-40 portfolio is down 3.84, something like that. I hate being down. It's going to be the first down year I've ever had. I've had years of big miss underperformance, but I've never lost money. Over the course of a year, I've underperformed. Not We're not perfect. Nobody is. I'm not happy about it, but, you know... Clients, you know, it was like, Zach, why, you know, why do you think, guy was saying the other day, why do you think your fee's worth it? And I was like, well, we're down 3%. Typical stock bond portfolio's down 25 I think if you go to ask to those people if they were willing to pay a 1% fee for us to save them, you know, 22% in the space of 12 months, that's, you know, that's worth it, right? And, and furthermore, guys, I think when you look at the backdrop with inflation, the debt, all the issues we're facing, I think to be in that standard, and we've been saying this for seven years, right? That the standard approach isn't going to work. And, and it's been proven to you. We said to you, eventually inflation is going to be a problem. Interest rates are going to go up. Stocks and bonds are both going to hit at the same time. And I know for a fact there's tons of you out there that have heard me say that and have still stayed in those portfolios and you've watched it play out. I, I mean, I, I don't know what you're doing. It's By staying in that portfolio, it's kind of like hit me again. Right, give it, give it your best shot. Lay it on me, baby. And and guys, here's the killer: we're not hiding underneath the bed, right? Last year, that average sixty forty portfolio was up, I think sixteen, sixteen and a half. Average sixty forty portfolio with stocks and bonds was up ten, eleven, something like that. So I mean, we're winning in the up markets, and we're obliterating it in the down markets. Why? Because it's just better risk management. It's better tools. It's active management that hedges. And if you're in retirement, guys, protecting against these years is more important than eking out 2 or 3% to the upside in the up years. But we've even done better than that. And it's not because we're brilliant. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. You never can hear me say that. But these are different times. Can we all acknowledge these are different times? These are different markets. There's different dynamics. Why in God's name would we be using the same tools that we used over the last 40 years? There's a better way. You can lower your fees, drastically lower your risk, and actually have managers watching your money every single day. Doesn't mean every move we make is right. But I've told people before, this whole analogy, you can't time the market. That's true. But you can absolutely look and go, you know what, man? Stocks are really expensive. This is not a good economic outlook. We should probably be tilted more toward preservation of capital. And for people that are in retirement, what is the downside to that approach? It's making less. Well, let me tell you something, guys. Making 10% in a year where the stock market's up 13, that has never ruined a retirement. Right? Think about that. Now, what I'm telling you is even in the last three years, in the up markets, our portfolios have still blown away the typical 60-40 approach. So you're not even giving up the upside. But I say it all the time, as an investor, we've got to embrace one of two risks all the time. We're either embracing the risk of catastrophic loss or we're embracing the risk of underperformance. If you've got a retirement portfolio, if you're within 10 years of retirement and you're in retirement, guys, there's no question what you should be doing. You should be embracing the risk of underperformance, meaning, again, look at it through this lens. Does making 10% when the market's up 13, does that ruin you? No. So the risk management, baby. Now that it and, and here's the kicker, it works all the time, right? You guys have heard my analogy before. Go look at the stock market. You invest in the stock market at year 2000 to today, you average 7.6%. If over that same period of time you were in a portfolio, and I'm not saying ours has done this, I'm just using this as a is a metric so you guys really understand why risk management gives you better returns, not worse. So 
over the last 22 years, starting in 2000, stock market investment with the S&P 500, you're up 7.6. If over that same period of time, you were in a portfolio that never once made more than 75% of the upside of the stock market. So markets up 10, you're up 7.5. Markets up 20, you're up 15. You underperform every year. But in down markets, you never lose more than 25% of the down move. So markets down 40, you're down 10. Markets down 50, you're down, what would that be? 12 and a half, something like that. If you were in a portfolio like that, over the same period of time where the stock market returned 7.5% a year, you made 14.6. Right? Mind-blowing. Almost double. This, why do you think we do what we do? Somebody goes, Zach... Why are you so sure, you know, like, you know, is this just marketing for you or or you, do you really believe in this? And I said, well, if you look at what I pay our other portfolio manager, if you look at what I pay our analysts, and if you add up what we pay for research on the year, it's about a million dollars. So if I'm willing to spend a million dollars and none of no other firms around here, our size do that, right? Do it's not because I like lower profit. It's not because I wouldn't like another million dollars to slide in my pocket per year. Why am I spending that extra million dollars, guys? Because it works, right? Why else would anybody make that investment? It works. And when you can get that level of active management, that level of care, people that have skin in the game, when your account goes down, their income goes down. Right? That's how we work. No commissions. Fiduciary. At the same cost, more say, just there's a better way. And I, like I've said before, there are other firms out there that do it. We're not the only ones. If you take nothing from this show, okay, take this, go find some good active managers. If they're not us, that's fine, but go find active managers that know what they're talking about. And a really easy way to see that is if they were pitching 60, 40 portfolios over the last five years, immediately disavow them. Okay, because your, guys, the fees you're paying should at least have had you dodge the bond thing. I have been on the radio telling you this was going to happen for bonds for seven years. This is the slowest in history. If your guy did not get you out from there, it doesn't mean he's bad. It doesn't mean he's stupid. What it means is you're not getting any value for your fees. Call somebody that will deliver that value, like us, 866-779-RISK. Again, 866-779-RISK. Go to the radio show website, knowyourriskradio.com, bulwarkcapitalmanagement.com. You guys know the drill. Now stick with us through the break. We're going to be back, and we're going to apply that same framework, right, that common sense look at commodities and talk about some news as it relates to commodity markets that I think has been pretty important and pretty kind of earth-shattering, honestly, uh, in the last week or two. So anyway, stick with us through the break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Do better in bull markets. Do better in bear markets. Pay less fees in all markets. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. You can subscribe to Zach's free newsletter, The Bulwark Insider Report, at knowyourriskradio.com. Hey, it's Story Monson with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of Know Your Risk Radio. Zach, what's the number one concern with people's investments right now? Without a doubt, Dory, it's inflation and it's here. All the money printing from the Fed and long period of zero interest rates, the bills come and due and inflation's going up. And when inflation rises, bonds get smoked. We've been saying it for years. If you're using bonds in the old school 60-40 mix with stocks as the safe portion of your portfolio, you're taking a risk in today's inflationary environment. Well, what should our listeners do? If you're worried about inflation, we believe that you should consider getting out of bonds and get educated with Bulwark's bond replacement strategy. We teach you exactly how to do it in our free booklet, Common Sense Investing. Learn how to protect your portfolio against loss, but still seek to grow your assets. Call Zach now for your free copy of Common Sense Investing, 866-779-RISK, or go to knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us through the break. Uh, It's kind of fun being back here in the studio. I was just telling Darren, the fearless millennial at the helm here, uh, it's like a blast from the past, like walking down memory lane here. 
Back to the back to the roots. We've been doing this set. Can you believe that? Seven years, man. And we were talking about your kiddo, two and a half years old. Jeez. Where what is that age that you reach? This is a question for you, Darren. What is that age that you reach where you get old enough to sit there and go, Can you believe how fast that's gone? Right? Because there was that I, I remember in my life there was that age to wherever and I heard somebody say that, I just meant, God, this just means you're old. Right? And then all of a sudden you hear it come out of your mouth and you're like, Oh my gosh. A, they were right, and B, I know what they're talking about now. You know what I mean? I feel like it's like 30, maybe? You know, where things start speeding up? Yeah. Like, for instance, it's Christmas already, <laughs> right? I, I I was telling the kids, I was like, I feel like we just went shopping for Christmas trees like three months ago, you know? We still don't even have a Christmas tree yet, by the way. Our carpets are getting replaced. We're finishing the longest remodel in history. It's like 17 months. Went like $100,000 over budget. Thank you, COVID. Yeah. Owie. <laughs> but it's done and it's beautiful. And uh, yeah, it's it's nice to get all that stuff wrapped up. But yeah, you're ripping up all your carpets. We're like, we can't get a Christmas tree until this is done, you know, or that we're going to be packing it around from room to room. Anyway. <clears throat> all right. So a little off course there. But on this last one, a couple big deals, guys. One of the things that we've been saying, and, and I've been saying this on Todd Herman's podcast as well, that when I look out at the world today, um. We look, you're going to go through periods of times like we have this year, um, specifically in the last, you know, four or five months where really nothing will work except just being short. I mean, if you want to like hedge a portfolio and avoid losses, you know, either going to cash or just going short. That's another thing that I'd said in the past that we're kind of seeing play out, play out now, especially this year, which was um, for years I was saying, look, when inflation finally hits and they've got to raise interest rates. Uh, that short will become a new asset class. And for those of you out there that don't know what I mean, short is when we're betting against things, right? So if we're short the market or we're short the S&P 500 and the S&P 500 is down 10%, we'd be up 10 or if you bought a leveraged ETF. But it's us betting against things going down. And that's one. those are the types of instruments that we use in our portfolios to protect, right? So you know, we've got a lot of energy stocks. When we want to hedge those energy stocks, we buy an index that goes up when energy stocks go down. Um, and we said that one of that we, I think when when this happens and rates go up, bonds are going to go down, stocks are going to go down, all that. That really the only way, you know, because usually in the past, you if you want to hedge your portfolio, right? Remember, stocks go up, bonds go down. You know, in the inverse is true. Well, we knew that that wasn't going to work because when stocks are going down because interest rates are going up, bonds are going to fall too. And we just said we th- we think you're going to reach this period of time where the only way to hedge short will become an asset class. It's the only way you'll be able to hedge your portfolio. Correlations will break down. That's exactly what we've seen. But on the global space, if we're thinking longer and not over short periods of time, six month, twelve month intervals, if we're thinking out over the next five seven years, one of my beliefs has been that if you don't like what you see going on through government action and things of that nature. If you don't believe that this proliferation of debt is sustainable, if you think it's a problem, the United States is going to be running two to three trillion dollar deficits out into perpetuity. And those that those numbers will probably grow in the next recession in the coming year, in my opinion. Um, Right. You're getting to the point where all these numbers are unsustainable. And the only thing that is really holding it up is the ability to print money and fill in the gaps. So if you want to short a system like that, what is the ultimate hedge against a breakdown in that system? And I'm not saying it's about to break down. I'm just saying it's something that you got to be. If the world is continually being propped up by printed money, you better have something in your portfolio that will carry you when that breaks down. Right. Because it's inevitable. Now, the problem is like my grandfather used to say, Zachary, just because something's inevitable doesn't mean it's imminent. But if you want a short thing, especially when you consider the ESG movement, right, green energy, I've just thought that commodities, specifically energy, would be the best way to short it. Because no matter what the Fed or central banks do, it does. you can't print commodities. You can print all the money in your world. It doesn't all of a sudden equate to having more oil supply, right? And that's another thing. You hear all the calls, oil's going to get killed. If we're going into a recession, oil's going to get killed. Look at all the times in the past. I'll say what I was saying from the beginning of the year. No, I disagree. Why? Because you're talking about periods of times when the market was balanced. You're talking about periods of times where the United States was not dumping a million barrels a day under the open market. You were talking about periods of times that when oil went up in price, so too did production. 
That's why oil always falls in recessions, guys, because typically commodities peak right before a recession. Well, when the thing that you make, if you're if we're Royal Dutch Shell or Chevron or whatever company it is, it, we produce oil and natural gas. When those things go up in price, what are we going to do? We're going to produce more. We want to cash checks. We want to hit our quarterly bonus numbers. If you're the CEO, we want to get that big $30 million payday, right? So you produce more. And as you produce more, all of a sudden the economy starts weakening, demand drops while production has risen, and boom, like in 07, oil peaked at 146, dropped all the way down to 35, 40 in the financial crisis. Right? That's normal. People are expecting that to play out again. Why won't it? Because it's an imbalanced market. You look at China right now. If China reopens, that grows oil, that grows oil, global oil demand by about 5 million barrels a day. Right. So right there, China eventually has to reopen. Biden has to quit using the SPR. That is six million barrels a day demand that has to come back online. Okay, guys, that's huge. That's like five point eight percent of global production. And think about this five point in the financial crisis, global oil demand. Remember when I said oil dropped from one forty six down to thirty five global oil demand dropped four and a half percent. At some point in the next year, you're going to have to increase global oil demand by like 5.8, right? Again, it's a perception problem. You're looking at it through a historical lens, and this is a completely anomalous backdrop. Does that mean oil can't go to 60? No, I'm not saying that, but it does mean it can't stay there. The other thing that we want to watch out is I think that the system's starting to kind of figure that out. Biden made announcements about making commodity investments across the world. That isn't good news either, guys. If you want commodity prices to soar, get governments in the commodity business. But these people have identified this weakness that we've been talking about, and they're trying to get out around it. And if this is the kind of thinking, if you think that the next five to 10 years are we're going to acquire proactive thinking and that you're not just going to be able to ride a smooth trajectory of the markets to retirement bliss... If you recognize that we're in uncharted territory and you need to be guarded against really nasty outcomes, give us a call. Just go through the process. Talk to me or one of our other advisors. All we're going to do is lay out our plan, show you how we do it, show you the performance, tell you what it costs, send you on your way. You call us if you want to follow up. You call us if you want to become a client. We're not going to keep calling you and, and, and twist your arm. So give us a call, 866-779-RISK. Again, 866-779-RISK. Go to the radio show website, knowyourriskradio.com, bowercapitalmanagement.com. Follow me on Twitter, at KYR Radio. You guys know the drill. We're going to be right back next week with a great interview. We're going to do a year in review with a special guest, one of my favorite guys. You guys will love it. Don't miss it. Have a Merry Christmas. We'll see you next week. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Thanks for listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Schedule your free risk review with Zach Abraham now at knowyourriskradio.com. Zach will be back with more Know Your Risk Radio next Saturday at noon on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.